Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice, where we talk about the real issues that you encounter as students and providers. I'm Becky Carson, Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and today I'm going to let you in on some secrets of test-taking that will help you get an A every time. You're going to want to stay tuned for this one. There were a couple things I got really good at in college. The first was critical thinking. I learned more about how to think than what to think. The second was how to eat a burrito. They aren't really that different if you think about it. In my quaint little college town, there was this hole-in-the-wall restaurant called Carburitos, where I would order a numero siete, mejor, sin frijoles. The burrito would come out in this silver foil package the size of a 32-week preemie, also probably weighing the same two kilos, and I had to somehow figure out how to turn that burrito into my own food baby. And I was actually quite skilled at this. I have a strategy that keeps the burrito in perfect form while also keeping my hands nice and tidy. I rip off small one to two centimeter strips of the tin foil, uncoiling the burrito piece by piece, and then I take a manageable bite. The strips accumulate one after the other on my plate, and by the end, it looks like I have tin foil spaghetti everywhere. Unraveling test questions in a slow, methodical way can help you prevent the burrito of a test from making a mess in your lap. But before I get to the meat of the podcast, I want to start by talking about the test itself for a moment. Pediatric nurse practitioners will take the PNCB, that's the Pediatric Nursing Certification Board exam, in either primary care, acute care, or both in order to be certified as a PNP. While standardized testing is not an ideal way for every person to determine competency, it is the final step after graduation to achieve certification, and that's the standard of practice. Your graduate school will test your proficiency in pediatrics through a variety of other ways, including simulation, clinical evaluations, papers, and other individual deliverables that are going to help you demonstrate your knowledge. But at the end of the day, you have to take a multiple choice test. You'll have 180 minutes to take 175 questions. Now, while only 150 of those questions are actually scored, 25 of them are pretest questions that they're using to gather data on whether they're good questions or not, but you have no way of knowing which questions will count towards your score. The computer-based test will provide one question per screen, and you can click to advance forward or backtrack on a question that you flag, but in most cases, we tell students to stick with their gut impression unless something magical has popped into your memory that changes your mind. The PNCB lists a primary care content outline on their website under the PC Exam Resources tab that's a blueprint for studying. They have a similar outline for acute care that you can find on the Acute Care Resources tab. By the time you're sitting for boards, you should be able to apply your knowledge in a combination of various scenarios using critical thinking skills. The content outline is broken up into four categories. Assessment and diagnosis comprises the largest percentage of the test at 35%. Health maintenance and promotion is 30%. Management is also 30%. And then a much smaller 5% portion of the test focuses on the professional role and responsibilities. While that tells you the role of the NP in each of those questions, what about the clinical problems? I'm so glad you asked. 
The outline also names systems-based clinical disorders in a prioritized list based on their frequency of occurrence in primary care pediatrics. Therefore, HENT, dermatology, and allergy end up at the top of the list, while environmental health, immunology, rheumatology, and genetics end up at the bottom. Like I said before, acute care has its own content outline, and that test has a greater emphasis on management with less on assessment. And if you think about what types of problems children in acute care settings are suffering from, it makes sense that the acute care clinical problems list starts with respiratory, infectious diseases, and GI nutrition as being the most prioritized problems. Before we go any further, I want to take a sidebar and talk about the honor code and test-taking ethics. In 2019, the PNCB discovered that their acute care test was unlawfully compromised. That put a wrench in the lives of a lot of people who had to postpone their test or had to retake the test entirely. The issue surrounded test question sharing and compromised integrity of the answers. Because these questions take a long time to write, validate, and administer, both the PNCB and your professors reuse questions that are good indicators of testing your knowledge. Communicating with another person about an exam is not only against the bylaws listed in the PNCB exam candidate handbook and the honor code of your university, it's downright unethical. Have you ever heard the phrase about shooting yourself in the foot? Well, it's pretty much the same thing as putting your head out the car window and spitting into the wind. You just don't do it. Testing is a necessary component of determining competency. And if you aren't prepared enough to rock the test all on your own, then you aren't ready to care for children independently. Now here's what you've been waiting for. How should you approach a test question? Well, just like my burrito, peel it back in layers. The question may start in a variety of ways. You're caring for a two-year-old male, da-da-da-da-da. The mother of a six-month-old, yada-yada-yada. In preparing the anticipatory guidance of a five-year-old, blah-blah, the key here is that the age is the first thing the question will give you, and it's almost always important in pediatrics. Age is where we start to build our differential diagnosis because you know the epidemiology pathophysiology, infectious diseases that occur in these populations can vary with age in children. So first pay attention to the age, then look for what I call buzzwords. These are parts of the illness scripts that we've been talking about all semester long. We have to use the English language to associate certain findings with their disease processes. Think about strawberry tongue and its association with Kawasaki's disease or hot potato voice with a peritonsillar abscess. Lastly, figure out what the question is asking you to do from that list on the content outline. Is this about diagnosis, assessment, or management? In my opinion, the classic boards type question gives you the presenting symptoms and physical exam findings where you then need to diagnose the condition in your head. Then it asks you about management. My recommendation is to try to answer the question for yourself in your head before you even look at the answer options, so that when you see the right answer you thought was there, it's simply a matter of clicking to match the answer. I know what you're thinking. This is all easier said than done. 
Well, let's look at a couple of examples. These questions are freely available to the public on the PNCB website. The question starts out, a two-year-old presents with acute bruising over multiple body surfaces, including arms, legs, and trunk. Pause. Okay, so we're already thinking about the age and common causes of bruising in a toddler. Your brain is going wild, but you start to think more critically for a moment. Okay, think toddlers aren't great walkers yet, so maybe it's normal to have bruises over bony prominences in the arms and legs, but it certainly would not be normal to have bruising on the trunk. So then you start to narrow your differential diagnosis to some more concerning items because this kid is more sick. Is this non-accidental trauma, HSP, ITP, cancer? You need more information, so let's keep reading. Faint petechiae are also noted. A CBC reveals a white blood cell count of 3,200, a hemoglobin of 6.5 grams per deciliter, and platelets of 40,000. Okay, pause again. Obviously, anytime you're given a lab value, you need to pay attention. While in most situations you don't need to memorize normals, you should be able to recognize grossly abnormal values in the common labs like a CBC, a BMP, and ABGs for acute care PNPs. Okay, so what do you recognize there? Well, the white blood cell count is low, the hemoglobin is low, and the platelets are low. This is pancytopenia. And while pancytopenia is a symptom of something else very bad that is underlying, you need to demonstrate that you recognize it and can select the safest management in the primary care setting. So we keep reading and the question asks, the most appropriate next step in management is A, measure a PT and PTT, B, treat with cyclophosphamide, C, refer to hematology oncology, or D, treat with high-dose steroids. Someone who doesn't recognize the pancytopenia will think that we need A, coags, in order to further diagnose the condition. Wrong. Someone who answers B, cyclophosphamide, is way out of their scope because we don't have an underlying diagnosis yet, and you will certainly not be ordering that drug without further workup and consultation. Someone who answers D is thinking that this is ITP causing the bruising in petechiae, but doesn't recognize the remainder of the low white count and the low hemoglobin. Besides, we don't need to do anything in ITP if the platelet count is greater than 20,000. So here we are left with C, which I know you would have picked anyway because you would have recognized these abnormal lab values and remembered the prevalence of ALL among toddlers, as well as those other concerning symptoms. So this brings me to another point. When I was in undergrad, I watched review videos for my NCLEX, and this one series of videos really stuck out to me. It was made by a woman with a very deep Southern accent who reminded you that this was a test and you had one chance to prove that you knew what to do. She referred to the test as, quote, NCLEX lady, which is super antiquated, and I won't go into the gender and culture issues there that I certainly don't agree with, but I digress. She would say something like, this is an emergency. That patient is sick and you have one chance to tell NCLEX lady what you're going to do. You're going to take a blood pressure. That's what you're going to do. You're going to take a blood pressure all day long till there ain't no more blood pressure. No, you're going to tell NCLEX lady that you know to call for help.
Well, in reality, we all know that we can do multiple things at one time. You can hit the code bell while putting the bed in Trendelenburg and getting the blood pressure. But the intervention that affects the patient outcome the most is mobilizing the healthcare team to an emergency. So when there's a question where you think to yourself, I can do more than one of those options at the same time, you need to consider which one of these will have the greatest impact on the patient's health, wellness, or acute care outcomes. Let's try one more test question before we go. Again, this is from the PNCB website. A previously healthy 10-month-old has been vomiting. Okay, pause. We're already building our differential diagnosis based on his age. We have an infant with vomiting. We don't know anything about whether there's fever or diarrhea yet, but we can assume that this is an acute illness because we know that he's previously healthy. What can cause vomiting in this age group? Well, we know it's not pyloric stenosis because he's too old. Could it be gastroesophageal reflux? a UTI, acute gastroenteritis, a brain tumor? Ugh, this differential diagnosis is still too long. Let me keep reading. A previously healthy 10-month-old has been vomiting with intermittent periods of intense crying and is passing red stool. Pause. Aha, we have some buzzwords from our illness scripts. Always pay attention when a test mentions something about a time frame. Intermittent here is an important descriptor where it's suggesting that it comes and goes. Also, periods of intense crying sounds a lot like colicky abdominal pain to me, and passing red stool must be similar to current jelly stool. This is intussusception. Typically, intussusception occurs in children between six months to two years of age, with 40% of cases among three to nine months of age. We've finally made the diagnosis, but uh-oh, that's not what the question is asking for. Let's continue. Which action should be considered first? A, order a complete blood count. B, obtain an abdominal ultrasound. C, obtain an abdominal radiograph. Or D, schedule a next day surgical evaluation. The person who answers A is mistakenly associating the red stool with hemorrhage. Let's skip down to C. Technically, you could order an x-ray where you might have findings that suggest intussusception like a paucity of gas in the right lower quadrant or a target or donut lesion that indicates the area of telescoping bowel, usually at the ileocecal valve. But the x-ray can be completely normal, so this is not diagnostic. It would be helpful to rule out obstruction, but with these other presenting symptoms, we know that intussusception should be high on our differential list. Option D has a time frame that we need to pay attention to. Next day surgical evaluation is too far from now, and this child needs urgent, if not emergent, management. This question might come back differently from the answer that you have in your heads because you might be thinking that the diagnostic and therapeutic study is an air contrast enema. You're not wrong, but in this case, option B, an ultrasound, gives us the ability to definitively diagnose the study in real time with ultrasound compared to a radiograph, which is a snapshot in time, and the patient can be referred for further management in collaboration with pediatric radiology and surgery. Ultrasound is a great option here for a couple of other reasons. One, it's readily available and inexpensive. Two, 
There's no radiation exposure. The air contrast enema uses fluoroscopy, which technically gives a small dose. Three, it doesn't require a pediatric radiologist to perform, which can be time-limiting. Number four is that it helps us keep our differential diagnosis open, where ultrasound could help us make an alternative diagnosis and characterize its possible causes. A fifth reason is less common, but is still possible to have a small bowel to small bowel intussusception, otherwise known as an ileo-ileal intussusception. And unlike clinical symptoms, ultrasonography can differentiate between ileo-ileo and ileocolic intussusception. Ileo-ileal intussusceptions are transient, and conservative treatment includes hydration and supportive care since it's self-limiting. The key to differentiate ileocecal from ileocolic intussusceptions is its diameter and length. Several studies have demonstrated that ileo-ileal intussusceptions are shorter and smaller in diameter than the ileocolic ones, which ends up being diagnostic. Just a little side reason that ultrasound is really great. Now that you're prepared to take boards type questions on your tests and certification exam, I think it's time for a study break. Burritos, anyone? It's important for you to build your foundational knowledge now, then begin to synthesize the information so that you can critically think your way through the tough questions, both in standardized tests and in real life when someone's kid needs you to get the right answer. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.